This episode of the FitCast is brought to you by Pedestal Footwear, the company that has designed the ultimate sock so you can get the most out of your training. Go check them out at pedestalfootwear.com. Hello and welcome back to the FitCast. My name is Kevin Larrabee, and if you, I really hope you tuned in last week because last week was, uh, I mean, we may have started the show with a showstopper, so we only talked about really one major subject for the show, and that was, of course, with Krista Scott Dixon of Precision Nutrition. Krista, thank you so much for hanging out a little bit longer. Yeah, it sounds like a, it's like a good time we're having here, so I just wanted to keep it, uh, keep it going. It, podcasting is fun talking about this stuff is a blast and when you're getting that high quality information i'm just gonna keep you on skype as long as i possibly can it's like a hostage situation really it is uh but you know there isn't gonna be any kind of cool like oh man how did they really do it at the end like it's not that movie (laughs) Man with, with like all those great actors and actresses it's just you and me talking about Hopefully not peeing our pants and then, <laughs> whatever, whatever. Life goals, life goals. Life, yeah, I know. You got to have those goals. So uh, if you didn't check out last episode, I really recommend you go and, and do that first. Maybe you're just late to joining the podcast or something like that. But uh, go back to that last episode because we really spent about an hour talking about uh, this fantastic post that you had, uh, how I quit weekend overeating and you know, there was a lot of great things that we talked about with that piece. So I want to just say that you haven't go back and listen to that. We'll still be here. It's this, we recorded this in the past. So this is still going to be here when you come back. Don't worry about it. Um, but th- there were uh, actually a bunch of other things that I wanted to talk to you about. So um, the first thing I, that I want to hit on is, is the subject. And maybe this isn't the best way to frame it, but uh, like sugar addiction, because this is like a, a topic that has been pretty hot in the the fitness world and there was a there was a recent uh, article that came out uh when the time we recorded this about a week ago but what what is like your stance a precision nutrition stance on sugar addiction because i think when you put something like addiction after a word or a concept it is super loaded unless there isn't research that backs it up yeah, and I, I think the corollary to that too is that it, it doesn't it's not just a, a label, there's also an identity that goes with that, right? So right. the potential there is to say I am an addict, which is, you know, for some people an empowering kind of identity and mm-hmm. that it helps them realize something. But at the same time, I think for many people it's like that's a very limiting story to tell about yourself, right? So um I I kind of like to frame it Um, somewhere in the middle, which is to say that certain foods have um, addictive qualities to them. And using addiction science and the findings from addiction science helps us to understand why people act as they do around these things. Mm. And what we know from addiction research is that, yes, some things are more likely to be addictive than others, right? There are things that give you a definable hit, Um, And and so we kind of consider these potentially more addictive substances. But, 
you know, in theory, we can become addicted to almost anything that gives us a hit. And I kind of feel like almost everyone's got their drug, right? For a lot of people in this business, that's work Um, or it's food, right? And, And so it's kind of... I heard a good definition of addiction the other day or the way that dopamine works, which is basically the idea that if you do this, then you will feel good. So it's like this if then sort of equation. It's not you're feeling good right now. It's if you do this, then it's like a promise, right? Then you will feel good or then, you know, your pain will go away or then you won't have to deal with whatever you don't want to deal with right now. Mm-hmm. So to me, I like thinking about addictiveness as a concept because I find it a very helpful way to understand what's happening here in, in behaviors. Because, you know, one of the hallmarks of addiction for a lot, like long time people, you know, addicts who've been involved in it is, um, they don't enjoy it anymore. It's not fun anymore. Like if you ask someone who's been smoking for 40 years, Hey, how, how great is smoking? You know, eight out of 10, nine out of 10 people will be like, Oh God, I hate it. It's expensive and blah, blah, blah. Um, maybe one in 10 will be like, Oh, it's still as amazing as it was <laughs> you know, the first time I tried it. But you know, um, so addiction is really this sense of being compelled to do something despite all kinds of rational and good reasons not to do it and perhaps not even enjoying it. So for me, understanding that feeling of being compelled to do it, as well as the automatic nature of it, right? That's another hallmark of addictive things is that it tends to become somewhat automatic and patterned. Um, I find that those are both very, very useful ways to think about things. And, and also that addictions tend to be contextual. So there's always the famous example of you know, a huge percentage of guys who served in Vietnam in the seventies were addicted to heroin. But when they came back from Vietnam, the vast majority of them were no longer addicted to it. And it's because, you know, a, you're in a war zone. So the environment facilitates it. It's easily available. Everyone around you is doing it. Nobody cares. You're probably going to die. So who, who cares? Right. Um, Whereas when you come home, it's not as readily available. People around you aren't doing it. You might have something more meaningful to live for and so forth. So that was a great example of how an environment can facilitate addictive behaviors or not. So I, I find the whole paradigm very helpful for understanding things. I think we don't want to stop there necessarily. Or if we pause there, we don't stay there, right? Because I think for some people it can be very empowering to say, you know what, this substance has a hold on me and I don't know what it is, but it has a hold on me and I get crazy around it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Instead of making this about me and my willpower and how much I suck, maybe I can say there's something about this stuff that makes me cuckoo. So maybe I'll approach it in a different way than just trying to sort of like white knuckle willpower my way out of this. Well, I I guess, I guess my, my concern when, when like statements like that are made are, the, the course of action that people will tend to go through is, all right, well, let's eliminate sugar from, from our diets. Let's go low carb. And that, that is maybe the, the reason why like, I'm always kind of concerned of the, you know, sugar is, is addictive because I know people that, I know people that go through and they posted about it on Facebook or whatever, because why wouldn't you uh, going through like <laughs> jars of peanut butter? Like they go, they like are on quest to find, new and unique peanut butters that they can then devour. Um, so, okay, is there a peanut butter addiction or is it a fat addiction? But maybe it's just a an addiction to eating and maybe not like specifically like a sugar thing. I don't know. 
Well, and you put your finger on something that's really helpful to understand, which is that there are different mechanisms that control our food intake or influence our food intake. And so one of the set of mechanisms I think most people on some level get is this idea of a homeostatic mechanism, right? Like a biological energy regulation mechanism. And that story that just came out this week about the biggest loser contestants, like nobody, of course, is surprised that anyone who crash diets and does ridiculous things to lose weight, the body takes its revenge eventually, right? So, So homeostatic mechanisms are like, how does your body regulate energy coming in and going out? And, you know, how does it regulate what energy is available and so forth? But then there's also another set of mechanisms that people call hedonic, H-E-D-O-N-I-C, mechanisms, which are really more about the experience of things, right? The pleasure of things, the compulsion to do something. Um, And an article just came out actually that um, was really useful for understanding this. And it talked about how both homeostatic and hedonic mechanisms interact to create each person's kind of unique fingerprint, if you will, mm-hmm. of an appetite or hunger experience. I think we've all had that experience where appetite is out of whack with hunger. And so most of us know it like, I'm not hungry, but I eat. But many of us, I think, have had it in reverse too, which is like, I'm physically hungry, but have no appetite, right? Especially after we get sick or something like that, we have the stomach flu. Even a week later, the thought of food is like, blah, right? Mm-hmm. But physically, we, we need energy. So um, so those things are generally coordinated, but they can get out of whack. So um, to go back to your point about like, okay, are we all just deluded about what this all means? I think what you're getting at is the fact that there is a lot of complexity in understanding what drives eating behavior? And I think maybe your hesitation around addiction is it feels oversimplified, first of all. Right. And it feels like also perhaps a license to go all or nothing. You know? And so I used to be a bit more of a hard ass about sugar than I am now. I still don't really feel like it adds a lot of value to the universe. You know, it's, it's delicious, but it doesn't really add a lot of value to most people's bodies. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, cutting out processed sugar and garbage and, you know, Mountain Dew and all this kind of stuff does not necessarily mean you ban every molecule of carbohydrate from your life. Right. Exactly, yeah. um, so I, I think, I think sometimes there's sort of like a bit of a reductionist misinterpretation of, okay, now we have a concept. What do we do with it? Right? <laughs> so I, I think that's maybe part of the, the struggle that you're having, but I, I, I think it's really important to say, this is a complex thing um, that we are working towards understanding with animal models and human models. But, you know, what it looks like for every person is going to be different. There's also, and we talked about this in our last episode, this piece of a story, right? Like what story are you telling yourself around what is happening here? Um, For some people, I'm an addict is a useful story right now. For some people, it's not helpful at all because it's like, well, I'm an addict. What are you going to do? It's my crack. You know, (laughs) well, that's not useful either. Right. But for me, um, kind of buying in briefly to the idea that certain things could have addictive properties for me, or I was behaving like an addict, um, was actually extremely useful in helping make sense of things. Um, so, um, I'm not, I'm not kind of aligned with one way or that. I don't think PN really has a position on it. I do think if we have a position, it's against reductionism, right? Against right. looking for that one X factor, like, oh, this explains everything. I don't, I think that we always have um, stood against that particular way of thinking. 
this might be the best transition into uh, into willpower uh, because again another fantastic piece that you had on uh, the Precision Nutrition website and I, I will mention this I, I think this is confusing because we're recording back to back but I think I mentioned you should be going to precisionnutrition.com and, and going to the upper right hand corner of the screen click on the blog tab because that's going to give you access to so much unbelievable free content um, that you should just have gone through all already if you haven't this is the time to, to go up on there and, and bookmark it. Like make sure you're always checking out when new things are, are being posted. And Krista has posted a bunch. She's done a, a ton of the, the pieces on there, a uh, couple that we're going to talk about today. Um, but the, the concept, not the concept, but, but willpower, that, that's something that we've been focusing on a lot in the industry in terms of, all right, this is something that we need to know more about. We need to know what's actually going on and then how to help people with it because this is what is causing people to not be successful when they uh, make their goals, when they want to, you know, make sure that they're they're not overeating or, or not having you know that thing that they promised that they were not going to have, uh, and things like that. So um, I'm curious, what what have you guys found in terms of the like strengthening willpower? Like how how much benefit can we get out of you know, practicing this stuff and in, in, in getting better at it? That's a great question. I think one of the ways I would start is to say that pretty much every human personality trait or capacity is on a bell curve. Um, and so people vary quite significantly in how much they demonstrate an ability or a trait. Um, and so I think it's often very frustrating for that very small percentage of people who uh, would, we, we might call them high in willpower. Mm. They, they look at the rest of us and they're like, what is wrong with you losers? Like, how come you can't get it together? Right? Like, I think we all know that one person that whenever they make up their mind, that's it. Like there's just no, uh, my husband is a bit like that. Um, so we, we climb at a climbing gym that has multiple routes on a single wall. And so you can choose to climb the pink one, which is easier or the yellow one, which is harder. And so the way I look at it, I was like, well, you know, I'll try the harder one. And then if I need to use a hold or two from the simpler one, that's cool. It's not like there's any rules. Mm -hmm. Whereas my husband is like, I am climbing the yellow one. And if I cannot climb the yellow one with the yellow holds, I will not use the pink holes on principle. You know, <laughs> it's just, you know, that's how he is. And, and, and so I think there are those people who, who sort of decide to do something and then come hell or high water, they're doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, and this discussion is not for them <laughs> probably. Right. Or maybe it is, it helps us, helps them get empathy with the rest of us. But, uh, you know, like willpower is actually a fairly complex thing. I, I don't even know if I would say that it's like a single attribute because I think it combines a lot of different things. Um, it, it combines your ability to be interested in or compelled by novelty. It combines your attunement and attentiveness to environmental cues. So, you know, how much does your environment matter to you? It combines your sense of um, having internal principles. So, you know, how how finely tuned is that inner compass that we talked about in the last episode versus attunement to external cues. Mm -hmm. So I actually think that we think about willpower as like one thing that either you have or you don't or you can build it, you can't. I, I would actually propose that it's almost like a complex of multiple things. But that being said, I mean, we all know in fitness we can train complex skills, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I definitely think that willpower can be trained. I, I think that the fundamental starting point is really, and the, and the research shows this, the story that you tell yourself mm -hmm. about your willpower. So 
you know, one story is my willpower is infinite. Like I am an iron willed person. Another story is I'm a weak ass piece of crap. I have no willpower. Mm -hmm. I suck. And then another piece, it's another story you can tell yourself is, well, you know what? I struggle right now in certain situations sometimes, Mm -hmm. but I'm fairly sure that if I practiced, I could get better. And to me, that's the same, the sanest position for most people to take, to take the perspective that, you know, in some situations, generally not always, because again, I come back to this fact that we're not peeing our pants in public. So we have at least some willpower. Mm -hmm. We're not all punching our boss in the face. We're not all driving off the road and whatever. Um, So I like to take the perspective that in some specific situations, I I have trouble being decisive or I have trouble tolerating the discomfort of doing something. But I can certainly practice all of those skills that are involved and, and get better. And I mean, probably by now it should be clear that one of the positions I kind of take on things is that almost everything is a skill Mm -hmm. that can be segmented, like that you can break it up into little pieces and you can practice all the little pieces and get better at the little pieces. Cause sometimes it's, you know, um, for me, for example, willpower has less to do with being decisive and more to do with curiosity. I'm a highly novelty seeking person. So if you're like, Hey, there's a new restaurant, let's check it out. I'm like, yeah, let's Mm -hmm. do it. Like anything new or interesting, shiny, you know, I'm a very curious person. Um, and so for me, a lot of willpower is actually linked to curiosity because I'm like, oh, I wonder what that would be like. <laughs> I wonder what another bite would be like. I bet you that's delicious or like at a buffet. Oh, that looks good. Right. So it's not that I'm a weak willed person. I have a very strong will. It's just I'm a curious person. So sometimes it's not even really about willpower at all. And I think that might help people to know as well. There could be strengths of personality that you have that are actually creating this situation for you. This is a completely separate question, but I, I, I forgot to ask Brian last time and I meant to um, ask you on the last episode, but did you know who had the idea to make all the articles have a option to be audio? That was me. Oh my God. You, you, you should get 14,000 raises. That, that is the internet today. Like that is maybe it's because you were on the internet 20 years ago. You had your website 20 years ago. You had the foresight of knowing people do not have the attention span to stay on one page or just to like read. They need yeah. to be. That's why there's a podcast here, folks. Um, totally. Totally. And you know, there's also an accessibility issue for me too, right? Like I yeah, have found that right. people are not good readers or strong readers. And many people have like issues with reading, like actual problems with reading. Um, and, and some people are actually visually impaired. Like I had a couple of visually impaired students in my last, um, cohort of level two graduates and they were saying, can we have these lessons in audio? And I felt really embarrassed to say, I'm sorry, we don't have those lessons in audio just yet. We're working on them, but you know, I mean, so it's, it's also this question of accessibility, like making, like bringing it to people in a medium that works for them. Um, and, and text only is most of the time, not the best way to do it. Let's, let's talk about some, some information that can, that can help the fitness professionals out there. Because I, I know about half the people that listen to this show, they're working in the industry and they're, they have clients every single day and clients that are dealing with, with real issues. Um, and again, this is me totally just being a, a fan of your, your stuff and, and wanting to bring this up and share it with the audience. But um, you had another post of five powerful strategies for, for getting results with every client, uh, even the difficult ones. Um, and that's like, that's the last part is, is the thing that I definitely want to, to focus on. We have 
you know, if anyone has worked in this industry, you know, you have the client that you've, you've tried one thing after another, after another, after another, and you haven't been able to be successful, whether it's not being able to get compliance or, uh, them just trying to continue to do what they're doing and then maybe coming in twice a week to train and hoping that will be enough to get the beach body, the results that they want, but they're not working, uh, to, to get, um, so, so what advice do you have for people out there that are working with, with clients? Because there's, there's, there's so many people out there and they're it, like the pool is even getting bigger, Chris, because people are coming to gyms trying to get professional help more and more because it's not like we're really winning this, this war on obesity just yet. No, I don't, I don't have high hopes that we're going to uh, take it down. It's somewhere around the war on drugs for how successful we are oh, with geez. it. Oh, that's <laughs> a, oh, oh God. Um, all right. Well, maybe, maybe we can at least get a, um, like a Netflix show in about 15 years. Um, what, what's that show on Netflix about the, the drugs? Uh, uh you mean, you mean Narcos, the, uh, yes. about to, Pablo Escobar? Yeah. I've been, I haven't gotten that deep in that, but I watched like the first episode <laughs> and a half and like, oh my God. Yeah. The war on drugs. That was, oh geez, that wasn't very good. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. What that show. Yeah, no, talk, I mean, and that, that show for me, let me just digress one, one step further. Yeah, yeah. Talk about domestic terrorism too. <laughs> like I think, you know, in the, in the U S people are freaked out by this whole domestic terrorism, man, down in South America, they were living it like 30, 40 yeah. years ago in, in really epic ways. Like there's a, there's, I don't want to spoil it, but there's a scene where of like, uh, you know, a huge intervention into a massive public institution. And it's just like, Oh my God, I can't believe this happened, but it, it did. It was such a crazy time. So well, anyway, I would love to, <laughs> And this is this is this is a plug for another show, uh, Fit Ass Life Feel. If you want to hear a show that's like a whole episode on fear and what fear can do to us, from uh, the standpoint of a psychotherapist, yeah, that's that's really interesting stuff. Just because uh, let's not we won't get political, but hey, you know, there's some ways you got to like manipulate the population to get them to uh, side with you sometimes, and sometimes they do that psychologically. So. No, it's, it's the way of the world to, you know, just keep your eyes and ears open and all that stuff. Um, wow, dude, can we go any further off the path? Well, okay, no, I actually think we have a connection here because right. I think that fear is part of what makes difficult clients difficult because it was interesting when this article came out, um, most people were like, oh yeah, that was kind of useful. But at the same time, I had some people read it and and think to themselves, they were, they were like, we have this bullet point of, of things that I suggest that people that you might find quote unquote difficult to work with. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and really, you know, difficulty is highly subjective. Like some people love working with depressive clients. Other people love working with athlete clients. Like every group of clients has their own kind of bag of tricks. And so there's no kind of empirically difficult client per se. But I kind of gave a list of things like, you know, someone who has a chronic illness or, you know, someone who is part of a culture that you don't belong to. And that could be anything, right? Um, someone who is much older than you or much younger than you, like all, you know, someone who, where, the, where there's a language barrier, like there's all kinds of things that can make an interaction quote unquote difficult. And, um, some people responded and they're like, are you saying that my group is difficult? <laughs> and I was like, well, no, that's not really where I was going with this. That's the the idea was, yeah, the idea was to sort of open up the field and say, have you thought about this? And you may find yourself on this list. You as a coach may be working in a language that is not your native language. Mm -hmm. You as a coach may be seeing a population, 
you know, that is older than younger than you, like, you know, you yourself could be the difficult one in a sense, right? So the difficulty is really not about a quality of a person. It's about what occurs in the interaction between you. Um, and it's funny because personally, I love working with younger dude clients. I don't know why I always have, I just find them fun. Now I'm a 42 year old woman, right? Like there's nothing that we have in common in terms of our worldview, like nothing, right? They play video games in college. That is true. That is true. But they were sort of like the cheesier, like slower moving. That's not true. I guess I used to play shoot 'em up a little bit, but, uh, right. I played doom when doom was a thing. And yes. <laughs> Let's, let's, okay, fair enough. Let's make this back in my place, Joe, and we'll talk about Doom for half an hour. Crossover. <laughs> you know, and I do like fighting and that sort of thing. But but in general, I have very little in common with a 21-year-old guy. Mm-hmm. But yet I love working with that population. So, you know, sometimes you find these unlikely um, comrades or these people that you do like working with. But in general, like difficulty is sort of like what's constructed between the two of you in your interaction. Mm-hmm. So sometimes people, you know, some people would read this and say, oh, but I, I have a client with a chronic illness and they're not difficult to work with. They're very nice and we figure it out and that's just fine. So, yeah, so yeah. again, it's not like, it's not a characteristic. It really is about what are you bringing to the table? What are they bringing to the table and what's happening in your relationship? And I think that one thing that really makes things difficult for coaches interacting with clients is coaches have their own stuff and their own agenda. Um, and some of them struggle to empathize. And um, one reason for this, perhaps, is that a lot of coaches and, and trainers and folks in the fitness industry come to this as former competitive athletes. And so athletes have a very particular headspace. A lot of if, if you're achieving at a high level, you're not a normal kid. Um, I saw a video of a, a girl a few days ago who is nine years old and is super into obstacle course racing. And she trains three hours a day and she loves it. And so I shared this video on wow. the Facebook page. People were like, that's terrible. She doesn't have a normal childhood and she doesn't. <laughs> I'm like, okay, but you don't understand. Little athlete kids are different mm-hmm. from the rest of other kids. They love doing these things. Remember um, we talked about like the internet, like and everyone needed to yes. comment and like <laughs> give right. their opinion on like how they would something. raise that kid differently or, you know, write that article. Jeez, yep. come on, guys. Chill. Think before you type and hit enter, please, for the love of God. We'll, yeah, all, we'll all be know. happier people. <laughs> That's one thing I've learned from 20 years of being on the internet. You just don't even bother with internet arguments. But um, and, and so, like, a lot of the difficulty that um, former athletes have is their clients don't share their mindset and they don't share their value system. And so, you know, as a former athlete, you are conditioned to work hard, to have a really good work ethic, to try your best, to have a growth mindset, to work on your skills. And that's not a training, you know, a mindset training or a life skills training that a lot of people have. So, you know, right off the bat, if you have a client that's not as committed as you to the process of getting fit, some coaches immediately are like, well, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, they kind of, they, they find it difficult to kind of get into another person's head. So I think, you know, job one for any coach is really cultivating a sense of empathy. Um, and, and, you know, you're never going to be perfect with this. Like I'm never going to get completely into the head of someone who is super different from me, mm-hmm. but I can kind of go there and try to find the common, um, elements. And so for example, one of the pieces I put in there was, um, 
a client, you might have a client who's going through a gender transition, Mm -hmm. which for fitness is quite salient because they might be on hormones that change the way their body responds. They might've had surgery, which means recovery. Mm -hmm. You know, it's actually, it can be quite an interesting set of physiological um, challenges and things you have to process. There's body image stuff, whatever. Mm -hmm. Now I've never gone through a gender transition, not saying it can't happen, but 42, you know, I'm a little old for it, but, um, when I was working with people who were going through gender transition, I was like, okay, this is never going to happen to me in this sense, but I can think of times that I have felt ashamed or scared or, um, going through a medical procedure that I didn't know what the outcome was going to be, you know, so I can tap into all these other elements of my experience to find a common humanity with this person and just kind of honestly like a basic human compassion um, and connect with this person and tap into those basic human drives and feelings while still acknowledging the uniqueness um, of, of their experience and really seeking to understand, you know, hey, how do you see the world? You know, what are you thinking about? What's um, important to you? Um, the other point I was going to say about working with clients that are um, different than you is how important it is for coaches to expand their range of experience. Yes. So I really strongly suggest like travel the world, um, learn to speak another language, even if you don't do it tremendously well, so that you understand what it's like to struggle with language. Um, you know, go out into the world and have other interests, other experience, meet all different kinds of people. So that when that person that doesn't speak English comes along, you're like, oh, dude, I totally get it because I'm really struggling with my second language that I'm learning, you know, Um, or, you know, just uh, the the larger your experiential range and repertoire can be, the better you will be able to relate to all kinds of different people. So, um, so that's kind of like your basic starting point as a coach. And then there's like specific methods, of course, that you can, that you can use. And we can get into those a little bit more if you have specific questions about them. Well, I mean, like Crystal, like that, that is just great advice for being a better person in general, right? Like maybe you should do do a little bit of traveling. Don't go to Orlando, but you know, maybe go to uh, another country, go to Germany or something like that, or even go, to India, go, go someplace where you can kind of experience some, some different culture, just so you're kind of not stuck in like the four walls of your current mindset. Yeah, absolutely. You know, push yourself outside the comfort zone. I I remember the first time I went to a country where I truly did not speak the language. Like, I mean, I can get by in French and I went to Germany. Okay. Um, and I, like, it wasn't even, you know, I speak a little bit of French so I could survive Italy because the languages are similar. You can figure out the words, but Germany, I was like, man, I don't even, I don't even, I, I can't even guess what these words are. And then I went to Japan where I'm like, okay, now I'm out of an alphabet. Like now I got absolutely nothing <laughs> at all here. So, um, yeah, it was a very interesting sensation. And then also in Japan, I experienced people who didn't want to be near me. Um, I was, I was in Tokyo and I was in the part of the city where a lot of government workers are. So, um, like it's a very, like that. yeah, around there. And, and it was a very homogeneous place like everyone was sort of working in the same industry and they all like literally everyone had the same tie and the same briefcase and yeah that's Japan yeah it was kind of freaky because I come from Toronto where it's very mixy mixy Mm. and um and so we really black tie that's right yeah that's someone who's been there (laughs) I just got back there for my eighth trip I've been there a lot yeah so you know right um and and in certain areas you stand out and Mm. what was very interesting at least I noticed people didn't want to be near me have you seen Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift? 
<laughs> like <laughs> that's basically the it, the only introduction you need into Japanese culture for for westerners. Like sometimes it I mean it's it's obviously uh not a dumb movie. It's a fantastic movie, but um it's very generic. Um but yeah, there's there's definitely a concept of be of outsiders of gajins and yes, otherness. Like, yeah. yeah, and they don't really it depends. Like if, if, especially if you're standing out, like they're kind of like, Oh, well, you know, you're, you're an outsider, but you know, for the most part, every time that I've been there, I've actually been more and see you're, you live in Canada. So you, mm-hmm. this doesn't stand out to you as much, but people are out of their way. Incredibly nice. Even if they like don't want to be, it's part of their culture. You know, it's part of what's ingrained in them is to like be, you know, um, Try to trying to be helpful or trying to be considerate or and, and things like that. So that's one of the reasons why I go there like once or twice a year. It's because like you almost get shocked by how incredibly polite people are in certain certain parts. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, there's definitely a culture of politeness and and you know high quality social interaction in the sense of like extremely considerate. Um, you know. Um, like the really like a very clear sense of like what the rules of politeness are uh, at the same time i think it's it's interesting that they like, and i think this is how like subtle social kind of hierarchies work right um rarely will people be explicitly rude to you but there's a very subtle like you get this far and no further you know what i mean like totally, yeah. don't date my daughter <laughs> i will be yeah. nice to you in the subway or i might take one seat over from you, you know, like there's yeah. kind of a subtle like physical avoidance like totally. i'm just going to sit over here and not next to you <laughs> um which and but i found this a, an extremely valuable experience because i was like you know i need to you know as someone who's grown up being an as part of the normative culture in toronto um i need to feel excluded on some level totally. to get a sense of like, oh, hey, that's what that's like. It, it's that's what feeling, it's like to be the weirdo, yeah, you know? Like the, the best way I can describe it to people is it's like, oh, so that's what it's like to be, you know, a minority in a population. Oh, mm-hmm. God, like I had no idea because you you literally feel like you stand out. You feel like you almost want to find a way to to blend in because it's not like you don't want to stand out. No. And you can't hide. Like there are certain places where you can hide. Like, uh, you know, if you dress like the locals, as long as you don't open your mouth. Right. Like there are certain places you can kind of fly under the radar, but other places you cannot. And it's very interesting to have all that privilege stripped from you. You don't have um, any privilege about how you look. And I mean, to sort of tie it back around to what we're discussing there are some people who walk into a gym and they can pass, right? If they wear the right T-shirt, you're like, eh, that person's probably a member. They probably fit in. Mm-hmm. But there are some people who walk into a gym and they know they will never pass as an experienced gym goer. So not only do they feel like, okay, I'm trying out a new thing, but also I don't fit in here, right? Like imagine being that person going to the CrossFit where everyone's wearing booty shorts and has like nine pack abs and stuff. And you're like, Oh, I just want to get in shape, you know, and you just feel like such a lump and so ungainly and so forth. And so, you know, I I think it's very valuable to have that fish out of water experience to understand how much incredible courage it takes so many people to even come to see a trainer in the first place. I mean, it's, I've heard of people who, would just drive to the gym and not go in <laughs> for the first few weeks or just like sit in the car and kind of 
cry a little bit and then and then drive away right it takes incredible courage yeah i mean i i've seen some like i i'm a part of a couple of like facebook groups for you know nutrition support and social support and all that stuff and you know sometimes you you see people's stories that pop up of like oh like you know i I really need to go into the gym, but like since the like I've been away for the last couple of months and I gained fifteen pounds and I, I just I don't even want to go into the gym because everyone's gonna see all the weight that I put on. It's you know, it's a it's a terrible cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, not only do you not have the problems that brought you there in the first place, right. you have all these other problems of, of self-esteem and, and there are all kinds of little subtle details I think we often don't think about. Mm-hmm. As I'm getting older, one thing I'm noticing is um, font size. You know, so I'm noticing font sizes on websites, in printed material. So you know, just like little funny things or do your clients have to climb up a flight of stairs to get to you? Well, you know, how's that going to work for someone with a knee injury, right? So just thinking about all these little details that make a space accessible or not. I mean, that's before we even get into actually interacting with what you might call a a difficult client. And I mean, to kind of get into that a little bit, a lot of what, I mean, there are people in the world who are just assholes. Like, I think we can all agree there's that 1% or 0.1% of the population. They're just just terrible human beings, right? Like just, that's probably 1.01%, let's, let's say. Hey guys, just a reminder, Krista lives in Toronto. <laughs> those numbers from living in Toronto. If you're living in New York, Chicago, Boston, uh, Los Angeles, those numbers may be significantly different. <laughs> it's all on a bell curve. It's all that's on right. a bell curve, right? Um, and, and those are like your hardcore assholes, right? But, but in general, you know, what what we might think of as difficult clients are really just people with poor social skills or who you know don't have good self-regulation or they're busy or they're stressed they're not showing up as their best self to come and see you maybe their their newborn baby kept them up all night like they're dealing with all kinds of stuff so you know and then what happens is often the coach will try to push or motivate or convince which sort of sets up this cycle where the client resists in either explicit or implicit ways. The coach pushes harder, convinces harder, you know. And so in a sense, we create the difficulty in the exchange between us and the client. And I think that's difficult for a lot of coaches to hear because they're like, no, I'm awesome. My clients just suck. And I'm like, well, you know, if all your exes are psycho, the one thing they have in common is you. So if you find yourself with a lot of difficult clients, either you're working in a psych ward or some other place where you really do have difficult clients, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, maybe there's something that's happening in the exchange between you and your clients. All right. We got some stuff to think about. So what uh, we're going to do right now is we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be right back with more from Krista Scott Dixon. So stick around. Wow. How awesome is that interview so far with Krista? She is the best. But I want to take a second to, again, talk to you guys about Pedestal Footwear because I really hope you've gone to their website and checked out what they have to offer because I know that if you go and buy a couple pairs of these socks, you're not going to want to train in anything else ever again. The only time that you're really going to need to throw on shoes is when you want to push like an extremely heavy sled. I've even been using mine while riding my Airdyne bike. Like they have enough grip on the bottom. They're just absolutely fantastic. You get the benefits of barefoot training, but you also get the grippiness that you would expect from a shoe. So you're going to be able to do things like lateral plyometrics. You're going to be able to 
like feel like you have a solid contact to the ground when you do things like kettlebell swings or or lunges. You're not sliding all over the place like you would be in regular socks. And you're not grossing people out at the gym because you don't have socks on. Let's be real. Come on. I know you know who you are. Like you probably should have socks on and it's just like a sanitary thing. It's something that other clubs and facilities, they're not even going to let you even think of doing. And that's why pedestal footwear is the best option because you get the best of both worlds in terms of shoe and sock because you get that extra proprioception from having, I should say not having like an inch of rubber in between you and the ground. You can actually feel the ground. And like I said before, you have the grippiness of the shoe. And they've developed these things knowing what, like what people that lift a lot are going to be worried about because these guys lift like Brendan lifts. <laughs> He's a beast and he knows like you're going to want to deadlift in them. You're going to want to do a bunch of things and you're going to sweat, but they've engineered these socks. So they actually don't need to be washed every single time you use them. Like you have to wash them every three to four times. You use them, you know, it might vary from person to person, but they're actually silver treated. So they're going to last. They're built to last. And that's what is so great. They've engineered these things knowing like if they send a pair to me or like they send them to everyone at Mike Ball Strength and Conditioning, they know we're going to beat the crap out of them. They made sure that these things are built to last. So even if you do train hard, these socks are going to be able to go along with you. This is the last week that they are with us. So I really hope that you guys go over to the website, not to support me because we don't even have a code. I'm telling you this just because if you go to their website and you go and check out their socks, I know you're going to be blown away. You're going to be like, yep, okay. yeah. I, what the hell was I doing? Like, I, I need to be using these socks when I'm training. Uh, it, they're just the best. Go to pedestoolfootwear.com and check out what they have to offer. So again, that is P-E-D-E-S-T-A-L-F-O-O-T-W-E-A-R. And check out the, the lineup. They got great colors. They have a bunch of different size of socks. So you can get your your knee height socks, you know what I mean? You can get your ankle socks. Like that's me. I like, I like the low cut and see what they have to offer. And I just want to sincerely thank them for supporting this show. And I hope you in turn go and check out what they have to offer and support a great company like them as well. Great company, great products, pedestalfootwear.com. Okay. We are back with Chris and Scott Dixon and, uh, wow, that was, that was, a, that was, a, that was a, that was a really jam-packed segment, I think. Um, we got we got to go everywhere from from Toronto to Tokyo, and then we got to talk about willpower and sugar addiction. One thing that I forgot to to ask about you on that last segment, and it's kind of a different subject, but this is something that came up on this show maybe like six months ago. Uh, was the the thought that of a certain way that fitness professionals should look. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in getting your thoughts on, on that just because, you know, there's, there's an idea that, you know, fitness professionals should, should be in shape. Like they should look like what their clients want to achieve. If you do not look that way, you're in the wrong business kind of thing. Uh, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's a very interesting question and I have grappled with that a lot. And it's funny because I was just talking to my hairdresser this morning about this very question and she's a woman in her fifties mm. and she has just started at a gym and she was saying to me, 
I do not want to walk into a gym and have my trainer be some perky 21 year old. I don't relate to that person. I don't feel like that person gets me. I don't want to have a trainer with a quote unquote perfect body because I feel like they can't relate to me. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was very interesting for lots of reasons. Um, And research actually shows that Yes, there's always that 1%. I I, I keep coming back to the 1%, but it really is. It's like there's that 1% of people who is truly motivated by having a trainer who has what you might call like an aspirational physique, right? Mm -hmm. So you walk in, you're like, oh man, that guy is jacked or that girl is jacked. I want to look like them. So I'm going to sign up with them as my trainer. So for a small proportion of of people, that actually does work. And I think that tends to work on people who are maybe younger or who are not quite clear on like, what they want out of a trainer. So they think that if someone looks a certain way, that's what they too will become. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think for most people, I think they're much more interested in what can this trainer or coach do for me? Right. Like I need help. I need to feel better about myself or I need a pathway to a goal that I'm trying to achieve. And I need someone who can help me do that. So I feel like this person needs to be legitimate enough mm-hmm. that I feel like I can get them and that they, I trust that they, that I know what they're talking about. At the same time, I don't need that person to be exceptional because that's not what I'm here for. I'm not here for you <laughs> to be in shape. I'm here because I need to get in shape. Mm-hmm. So, you know, can you relate to me? I think that's really the question that most people are asking. And I I feel like more than how you look or how in shape you are, because that can change over your life, right? Like if you're a jacked 21 year old, good luck being a jacked 51 year old, right? Maybe it'll happen, but it's a whole lot harder. So, you know, if you're a 51 year old trainer, you probably have a different sense of what your body's capable of, right? So, um, a jacked 21 year old is not that hard to achieve in a lot of ways. So if I'm looking for a coach, that may not be someone I'm going to relate to. I might look for someone who's actually struggling and struggled in the past. So what I look for more, or, and I think what people tell me they look for more is someone who gets it. Um, and someone who, who clearly on some level walks the walk. And so that can be, that can be being in a certain kind of shape that I would call good enough, mm-hmm. right? So that you don't look like you've just spent the last four years living in a cave doing nothing but eating liquid cheese whiz, right? Like you should look like you've had some sunlight and some, and maybe a walk around the block every now and again. So you should look like a normal fit person. I do think, mm-hmm. um, like to a certain baseline, right? You should look adequately physically capable on some level, but past that point, I don't think there's an advantage, but what you should have is a, some demonstration that you can walk the walk. Mm-hmm. So if you give me a thing to do, I should feel like you can do that thing. You have done that thing in the past. Maybe you were capable of doing that thing that you've been through that thing that you're just about to give me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a good example of that uh, is Charlie Francis, who, um, you know, legendary sprint coach was Ben Johnson's trainer. I saw him speak many years ago at the Swiss conference. And one of the things that struck me right away was how can this guy train sprinters? He doesn't look like a sprinter mm-hmm. at all, but of course, he has the capacity to make amazing sprinters. Mm -hmm. Um, and many, many athletic coaches are like this. I mean, they were competitive high level athletes, but you can't be a competitive high level athlete, you know, at a certain level forever. So at some point you're not going to be able to do the thing 
that you were able to do. You can't put in the same kind of performance that you used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a coach, you can say, I have done that. I have walked that walk. I'm continuing to walk it. You know, maybe now um, I run three days a week or maybe I, you know, keep up with it in some other way. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess a fit body is like a proxy for something else, which is knowledge, expertise, and the ability to relate. So to kind of bring it back around to your question, I think a fit body is valuable. It doesn't need to be exceptionally fit, but it's valuable only in that it shows me that you two are able to grapple with the same kinds of things that I'm grappling with. So that's kind of a complicated answer, but I think that fitness looks so different for so many people, right? Um, Like, I think we can all think of people who look like they're in very good shape, but lead terrible lives, Mm -hmm. And it's just they have youth and genetics on their side. And, of course, the clock is ticking on that. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I would say you should be good enough and let it go. Mm -hmm. And if you're finding that you're not good enough, like so, for example, if you're finding that you've allowed your exercise habit to slide or if you allowed your sleep to slide, you know, ask yourself that question. Like, am I walking the walk as a trainer and a coach? If I'm telling people to de-stress and to get rest and to eat their vegetables and I'm not doing that, you know, maybe I need help with this. Uh, Maybe I need a coach too, right? I need someone keeping me accountable because I think one issue is that often trainers and coaches try to do it on their own. Well, you know, I'm a fitness expert. If I'm not in shape, that must mean I suck. Mm -hmm. No, it means you're a regular human being and you need coaching like everybody else, right? So... That's huge. Uh, I mean, that, that last part, and that's something that even, even I need to, to address is like, I, I know for sure, like nutrition coaching is something that I'm going to, to look into because it's, it's something that one, I, I kind of know too much to be dangerous. Yes, Um, exactly. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. I kind of need to be able to tell myself, all right, I'm going to shut this off because I trust this person to do, uh, or to put together a program for, for me to follow because I know too much. I know what kind of wiggle room that I have to kind of screw things up, but just not too much uh, where, where it will be noticeable. And that's not really a healthy way to go about things. Um, so yeah, coaches get coaches for the love of God. Um, Absolutely. And, and let me give you one more point about that. Cause I recently just got signed, signed up with a nutrition coach myself. Um, and so like to, to give your listeners context, I write the PN coaching program. Yeah. I wrote the level two coaching program. Like it's not, I, I lack, I, I do not lack knowledge in the field of nutrition coaching. Right. And I, and I'm a very adherent person. Like I believe in what I'm doing and I got a nutrition coach. And when I showed up to the nutrition coach, he did a food journal and he looked at it and he was like, man, you are not eating anywhere near enough protein. Now in my mind, because I was a nutrition coach, I was convinced I was eating enough protein because that's what nutrition coaches do. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, I I almost had that curse of knowledge problem where my ability to see reality was hampered by my own expertise. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was eating like half the protein I should be eating. And I needed an external observer to say, this is ridiculous. What do you like? What is this like 40 grams of protein a day? How are you not dead? (laughs) So, um, I I would almost argue that for experts, coaches are essential. And the line we like to use around here is the better the athlete, the more coaches they have. So Mm -hmm. if you want to be, you know, if you are in a job that requires physical performance, 
why would you ever do that on your own? Right? Right. You need a coach, you need a support, you need people to help you balance all those demands that everyone deals with, right? Work and family and all other stuff. Uh, well, I'm going to make sure that we get in some of the, the questions from the listeners. A lot of people uh, on Facebook submitted some stuff. So let's, let's hit on a couple of those before we, we do wrap up. Um, let's, let's hit on this one uh, from Alan. Uh, thoughts on basing diet on hormone profile like bioprint tests or on DNA? How much uh, is legit? How much is really just shooting darts in the dark? Yeah, that's that's such a good question. I, I, I go back to your point about having enough knowledge to be dangerous at this point. <laughs> I think we're, we're at the point where we have enough knowledge to be dangerous, but not to do anything super effectively. Um, l- let me foreground this. Hormones are extremely powerful. I think if you've ever supplemented hormones, and we talked about gender transition, mm-hmm. talk about hormone power. Like if you see someone start testosterone therapy and you, you follow them for six months, I mean, it's astonishing testosterone has magical abilities in the human body, right? As does estrogen, progesterone, all these things. Mm -hmm. Hormones are very powerful. It's, you know, if you can see what they can do, you believe in it, right? But that being said, very few of our clients are at the level where we need to be tailoring anything to their hormones. Mm -hmm. Um, Because most people, like 95% of your clients, are not doing the fundamental basics. They're not sleeping. They're not eating their vegetables. They're not eating protein consistently. They're not, you know what I mean, being consistently active. So worrying about these small details of hormonal situations for most people is irrelevant. Um, Then you have situations where, you know, we can make some educated guesses about particular hormonal scenarios. So a good example of that is, um, you know, does someone have estrogen dominance or does someone have high testosterone? With, with if you have a client who has high testosterone, God, get them in the gym, feed them pizza. You know, like <laughs> they'll they'll be surfing the magical yeah, wave some muscle German game. Volume training. <laughs> so that's right. That's right. Yeah. Just lock them in the squat rack until mm-hmm. they die or something, right? Like, um, so there are times when you really do need to consider a client's hormonal situation, right? So um, polycystic ovary syndrome is another one, right? Um, any kind of issues with insulin, um, but I, I think that's a different thing than the way that it's often talked about, which is that to propose that we can kind of create this kind of finely detailed fingerprint of someone's hormonal profile and then somehow arrange a diet uh, around that. I think we don't really have the burden of evidence to make that a supportable thing to do. Um, we have interesting speculative pathways that we can test, right? So maybe I have a client, I'm like, oh, you know what? You're estrogen dominant. Some research suggests that this might be a good idea or that might be a good idea. Let's try it. Mm -hmm. We'll see if it works. We'll use that outcome-based decision-making. We'll see if it works. You know, maybe it will, maybe it won't. And that will be a data point. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't say with a hundred, I mean, I think it's really about probability, right? I would never say with a hundred percent confidence, this will always work if your estrogen levels are X, Y, and Z. Um, I think too, I want to see testing. I don't want to just guess from a a skin fold and say, oh yeah, you know what? Uh, Triceps skin fold is high. That means your estrogen is high. Mm -hmm. I want to see blood work. I want to see some, you know, some legit measurements of hormonal 
levels. I don't want to, um, I, I think that there's, there's way too much speculation, um, going on for my taste. Um, and the thing about genetics is very interesting. I think we're, uh, we're still too young in the science of what we do know. Now there's some very provocative and interesting findings, right? Um, I have a polymorphism that may affect how I process, uh, vitamin B12. Mm. I have a polymorphism in the vitamin D receptor. Hmm. Interesting. What does it mean? I don't know. It might mean I, mean I need more vitamin D. It might not, right? So I think we're at this really difficult moment in our scientific understanding where we're like, oh, we're so close mm. to having a really good sense of more tailored personalized recommendations, but we're not close enough that where we can say very definitively, if you have X, you should do Y. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's only relevant for a small portion of clients um, at, at this point. However, that being said, it does give us a useful framework for understanding individual variation and individual responses to a diet. Um, there was a good, I think it was a bunch of, now were they in Finland? It doesn't matter. There was a bunch of graduate students um, because, you know, what else is there to do in grad school except do crazy stuff on yourself who watched the Morgan Spurlock film, Super Size Me. And so they decided to see if they could replicate this experiment where they eat nothing but McDonald's for 30 days. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as predicted, it was like, you know, one or two of them got super overweight and felt terrible. Some of them gained weight and didn't feel that great. And then there was like one or two people that did better. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, again, there's your beautiful bell curve of (laughs) human variation. Right. So I think it's a great question. I guess the short answer is. We have some provocative understandings. It probably doesn't matter for most of your clients right now. Probably in 10 and 20 years, we'll have a much better, um, clearer answer that we can um, assign with a higher level of confidence in the probability that it's correct. Oh, man. There's some cool stuff going on in science. Where's my bionic heart? Seriously. I don't want to have to take care of this thing. Give me something (laughs) like batteries or something. Here I am using my own heart like a sucker. I know. Like, uh, <laughs> where's that Terminator future I was promised? Uh, James Cameron, get to work. Stop making those Avatar movies. Uh, so <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's grab uh, this question since uh, I, I, I can't remember if we brought it up on this episode or the past episode, but Kyle wanted to ask, uh, given the recent Biggest Loser study, a question about fixing a broken metabolism would be enlightening and relevant. Yeah. And I think like broken metabolism, like whenever I hear phrases that are like really appealingly sticky and simple, like, well, my metabolism is broken. Like that, that has a a great for a headline. Yeah. It has a certain kind of truthiness to it. Right. You're like, I like that broken metabolism. Cause that's what I have. That's all. Cause that's what I have. That's right. That's, that's what was going on the whole time. I'm a special snowflake and, yeah. and not only am I broken, I'm broken in a very unique and probably unfixable way, right? Yep. <laughs> um, but you know, from, from, if we sort of step back and take a systems biology view, really your metabolism, if you're alive, your metabolism is not broken, right? Oh, you're okay. still exchanging gases and, and moving molecules around <laughs> sort yeah. of thing. So, um, you know, but I, so I think, I think broken metabolism is a very catchy concept without a lot of scientific merit, but that being said, it goes back to what we were talking about before with these kind of homeostatic regulation mechanisms. And so it's definitely a call to think about the body as a system, right? And so if you introduce 
a dramatically new condition into the system, the system responds. And so, you know, an analogy would be if I have my thermostat cranked to uh, 30 degrees Celsius, which is very toasty for you Americans, um, you know, and then I crack open all the windows and it's below freezing out there. That's a massive disruption to the system, right? And my furnace is just going to go crazy trying to regulate the temperature. So I think what you're really seeing there is a, a lovely, elegant demonstration of homeostatic regulation, that when you introduce a massive disruptor into a system, the system will work extremely hard to bring it back to balance. Mm -hmm. And that has consequences, uh, right? So if you're, if you're dropping a couple hundred pounds super quickly using incredibly painful methods of crash dieting and, and exercising for many hours a day, there's a very good chance your body will, in the long run, make things go back to where they were before or, or attempt to anyway. Um, I always say that biology plays the long game, you know, so maybe, maybe something isn't different in a week, but it might be different in a month or a year or 10 years. So, um, but that being said, I think the underlying question is, can we ever change, right? Is there a set point? Is, are are we doomed? Are we kind of living this inevitable destiny once our body settles out in a certain place? And the answer I would say is no, but it takes longer than you would think. So some of the research that's emerging suggests that people can adjust to a new normal. It just takes longer than we would expect. So, you know, with our clients in precision nutrition, yes, we might see some quite significant weight losses of, you know, maybe 70 pounds over a year, especially in, you know, men, especially if they're bigger and heavier. Um, but that's not something that's sustainable. You can't lose 70 pounds every year forever, right? Um, and we tend to prioritize the long game, the slow game, because that is a lasting game. That is a sustainable game. And so the research does suggest that if you make these kind of slow incremental changes, you can permanently alter to some degree what your body considers normal. Um, it's sort of the same thing as like, you know, the first, um, warm day in winter and like warm is just above freezing and you walk out and you're like, wow, it's so warm out here and you don't wear a coat and you're like, this is amazing. But if you'd had that day in summer, you'd be like, what is this day? This is horrible. It's so cold. It's ridiculous. Right? So a lot of it is about how slowly and gradually and, and quietly do you introduce change into the human body and under what conditions, um, Craig Weller, who you may know, um, works with us at PN as well as doing other excellent things around the internet. Um, you know, he, he did a lot of stuff in the military with this concept of stress inoculation training. And the idea is you can't take a recruit in the military on their first day and just airdrop them out of a, an airplane into a, like a live firefight, right? Like they'll just be useless. So over time, you build the skills that they need incrementally, but more importantly, you do it under gradually increasing stress. And so any new skill you learn in a very calm and relaxed context. Um, and so eventually, even the most stressful situations for a trained person become rather unstressful or relatively much less stressful than most of us would experience. So the same thing is true in kind of nutrition and fitness. You know, when it comes to physiological change, fast change is trauma, right? That's breaking a leg. That's mm -hmm. a fast change. Um, we're looking for slow change and slow change. It's like, 
nah, no big deal. Like you kind of slide it under the radar of your body. So your body's like, nah, I guess I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to regulate that. We're, this is all right. We're cool. We're, we're, we are within the zone that I am comfortable being in. Um, so that's how I would answer that question, which is sort of a long winded answer. But, um, the answer to, can I change is yes, but it's slower than you'd like and probably more involved than you would like. Right. I mean, I think the other issue people are like, well, you know, you lose weight and then you, then you gain it back. Well, yeah, because you didn't fundamentally change Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff about your life. You know, you went on a crash diet, but you didn't alter in any way your relationship to yourself, your environment, your activities. Like you didn't change any of that. So why would you be different in the long run? You know, so long-term change requires significant dimensions of your life to change over a long period of time. Uh, Let's wrap up with this question from friend Amanda Wheeler over at Mark Fisher Fitness in New York City, holding it down. Hopefully it's summer out there now it's it's may right now in in massachusetts and it's raining and it's 40 degrees what the hell (laughs) let's get this stuff together um but amanda wanted to know uh women in regards to intermittent fasting uh pros and cons is it different than you know the effects on men yeah absolutely It, it it definitely is and i i think that um you know, the answer to this is something that I think a lot of women don't want to hear. And I, I certainly, you know, um, didn't want to hear it when I first started thinking about it. But biology is we, we are, you know, in 2016, we are now in a time when our biology is not completely aligned with our culture and our society. Right. So we are now able to do things that we couldn't before. Uh, so we can stay up after dark and we can delay procreation and, you know, there's all kinds of things that we can do. Um, but unfortunately, if you step back and take a systems biology approach, if we are making physiological interventions, we are constrained by what millions of years of biological programming has in mind for us as an objective. And so, you know, for women, there is a physiological arrangement where, you know, our bodies are like, Hey, my evolutionary job here, and I'm not saying this is a social job or anything like that, but my evolutionary job here is to reproduce in a certain kind of way. And that means I need to have adequate energy intake Mm -hmm. and make sure that happens so that I can sustain a growing fetus, right? Um, that essentially is going to be sucking all my energy off me. So I need to have a significant amount of energy storage to make that happen. So women's bodies biologically are highly attuned to energy shortage and to fuel shortage and, and to, you know, these kinds of nutritional stressors, which is why I have found that women don't do very well on low carb diets either. Um, any kind of stressor, any kind of nutritional stressor, especially again, in the modern lives that we have where stress is very cumulative, um, you know, will be perceived by the body as a threat to reproductive success. And so the body will shut a lot of things down. Um, and in general, women do not get the results from intermittent fasting that men do. And I would even add a qualification to that. I don't even think that most men get the results from intermittent fasting that they're seeking. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have kind of a theory on this, which is kind of comes back to the human variation thing. I think that there's a certain subset of 
people, usually men, I mean, there's always the 0.1% female too, um, that do well on intermittent fasting because they are ectomorphs. I think that anyone who does well on intermittent fasting has a bit of ectomorphishness about them. Mm -hmm. Their bodies seem to naturally do okay without food for periods of time. My husband is like this. He's, he's sort of an ecto-meso type of body, just maintains a natural leanness. And sometimes he's just not hungry. Like he's, this concept boggles my mind to just not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't understand the words that you're saying right now. Um, but so I think there are people for whom fasting is a natural, and I sort of use the word natural carefully, but I, I think it's a more homey physiological place to be for them. And they do get super lean. And so they post their picture and they're like, look, look what in, uh, intermittent fasting did for me. And everyone's like, wow, that could be me too. And they try it, except their body perhaps has a different physiological response. And then, you know, they feel like losers because they can't do it. But to bring it back to women, you know, regardless of your social choices or your cultural choices or whatever, evolutionarily speaking, the way that women's bodies work by and large is to protect reproduction. And men's bodies do the same. It's just that they're less um, dependent on having fat stores, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, you know, men will knock their own reproductive axis out of whack too, right? You, we see this a lot in um, intermittent fasting guys. They knock their thyroid out. They knock their mm -hmm. testosterone production out. They lose their mojo, um, especially if they're training hard. So, you know... it's an Austin Powers, just like, technical term, right? Mojo. Yes. Yeah, mojo. Okay. Mojo. Yeah. <laughs> Just, I, I didn't know if there was, that was a cited source from a peer-reviewed article or anything. Well, you like know, I, I like to sort of be technical and use scientific terms very accurately. So I, I feel like Mojo is... Most people have seen The Spy Who Shagged Me. If you haven't, it's probably <laughs> on your favorite streaming service. I don't know if it holds up today. Like, God, Maybe not. 15, oh my God, what is that? That's like 1998, right? Oh, uh, really? Holy crap. All right, maybe you shouldn't go watch Spy Who Shagged Me. Never mind, forget about it. It still holds up, though. It's still funny. Although I feel like um, Goldmember is the, really the best one. Yeah, I mean, you got Beyonce in it. When, when was the last time you could say, like, Beyonce was in a movie? It's probably that one. With Michael Caine, right? Wasn't Michael Caine Jeez, that was in it? Yeah, wow. <laughs> God, how did Mike Myers get all those guys together? It must have been his Canadian charm. It must have been, yeah. <laughs> we charm the world. Anyways. Um, yeah, so... <laughs> but, I, you know, I, and I think... You know, the, the intermittent fasting concept really highlights something that's kind of near and dear to my heart, which is like, on what evidence do we base our recommendations? And I think for, many women have discovered to their chagrin that, you know, trying to do exactly the same thing as their male counterparts often doesn't work out. And it's not because they're not trying hard. It's not because they're not committed. It's because that fundamentally there's a different set of mechanisms at work or a different set of priorities. I mean, biology is kind of like about trade-offs and priorities, right? And so women's bodies tend to prioritize different things, um, you know, a little bit more or less. So, um, and it's the same thing with, with fat loss, right? Men's bodies more easily drop fat because their bodies, you know, they need a certain amount to survive like we all do, but women's bodies conserve fat much more aggressively and will respond much more aggressively um, to any kind of threat to it. So, you know, for women intermittent fasting, you know, again, it's like if you're trapped somewhere in an, on an airplane, you know, like flying to Australia, like it happened to me recently and they don't 
serve any food <laughs> at all. Uh, you know, th- there's going to be a moment when you might intermittent fast and it'll be fine. Right. But I think as a regular program, especially if it's combined with training, especially if it's combined with any kind of nutritional restriction, you're going to regret doing it. And, you know, maybe not this week, but certainly in the long run, it's really not a good idea for the vast majority of women. And I remember when, it, when our book came out, when, when, um, JB's book on intermittent fasting came out that I right. had a little bit of a contrib- uh, contribution to, you know, a lot of women who were in it were like, Oh, this is bullshit. You know, like I, I'm intermittent fasting and I feel awesome. I'm like, yeah, because you're high on adrenaline right now. Mm-hmm. Call me in six months and let me know what's happening with your period, with your sex drive, with your anxiety levels, with your sleep. Like, Let's see if you can keep this on, you know, sustainable. So you think that's like like the the new diet like effect of like, oh, here's this new thing that, you know, is completely different, it's exciting and there's there's new there's new rules. Yeah, novelty is a really big part of it, right? We're all looking for the magic bean. Mm-hmm. Um and it gets back to the discomfort tolerance we talked about in the in the previous episode like Almost none of us really want to do the, the, the work that's required. And I don't mean from like a work hard perspective, but more like none of us want to feel the discomfort that may be involved in a fundamental change to how we're doing things. Mm-hmm. And so we keep hoping that maybe the next thing will do this magic stuff for us. You know, the next workout program will get us into super amazing shape so that we feel good about ourselves. And then we don't feel good about ourselves. We're like, okay, maybe the next workout program, maybe when I get abs, I will feel good. Mm -hmm. Maybe if I do aerial yoga, I'll feel good. But we kind of mix up cause and effect, right? We kind of have to feel good or at least a little bit first rather than this thing giving us what we want. And we also have to recognize that, that change will involve discomfort. And at some point I will be uncomfortable with changing my behaviors and my habits and I may have to face some things that I don't want to face. So if anyone's promising me a super easy way to do things, I'm a little suspicious. That being said, there are some coaching methods that uh, do make life super easy and make you be skeptical about them because you're like, how can this be so easy? <laughs> Which is part of what we teach. So, right. um, but, but yeah, I mean, biology is uncaring. It doesn't care what you want in a way. And I think, you know, if you can respect the fact that we are animals, um, a lot of decisions become a lot more clear, I think. Well, that was the hell of an, another episode. I feel like we could, we could keep going, but unfortunately, um, I have to leave my house to go do something. So, um, okay. So, uh, just wrapping up right now, again, hopefully you checked out the, the other episode. What, what I can promise is that, uh, I'm going to bug Krista to get her back on the show because I feel like, you know, it's, we're just kind of scratching the surface on some of this stuff. And there's, there's so much more that we, we could cover. In the meantime, there's a couple of things that you can do. One, if you have questions for Krista for like the next time that she's on, you can start throwing those at me on, on Facebook or on Twitter, or just go to the website and go on to the contact form, send them in there. Kevin at the com. Trust me, I'm all over the internet. If you want to get a hold of me, there's plenty of ways that you can go about doing it. Um, also, I want to mention, maybe it's best. I probably should have done this last time. I'm going to spell it out. S-T-U-M-P-T-U-O-U-S dot com. Uh, that's Chris's website. And you can jump on there and, and just make sure. It's another thing that you can check out to get some some more information. Uh, also, Chris, you mentioned Facebook. Is, is that there's an opportunity there? for, Mm -hmm. for following and things like that. 
Yeah, I have a Facebook profile, a Facebook page, and a Stumptuous page. And I think there's a Stumptuous group, which I didn't create, but I kind of wander in there occasionally. So there's like at least four different places where you can find me. I'll um, this is this is my new thing is like making this as a uh, as a as a company now as a, as an actual thing. I'm gonna try to actually put all this stuff in the show notes. So hopefully, and we can blame future Kevin, if this doesn't happen, but, um, I should have all those links in the show notes. So if you just go to fickass.network, click on the show notes for this episode, which would have been better if I figured out what episode number it would be, but trust me, you're going to be able to find it. And there's a search bar at the top. Just type in Krista. If you need to, if you're hearing this in 2018, go <laughs> back and, uh, and check all that stuff out. Hopefully, I don't know. Hopefully I'm going to get that heart I was gonna say maybe I'll have my bionic heart by then. Hopefully, maybe I get my 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 eye heart, my Apple eye heart. And uh, maybe I should wait for the eye heart too, though. Yeah, yeah. Of... Don't don't be an early adopter. You no. never know. Oh, you never want to get the first version of an Apple product. Come on, guys. We all know that. So, um, <laughs> Chris, anything else that people should keep uh, an eye out for? Um, any kind of like speaking engagement stuff stuff going on at, at PN or anything like that? Uh, well, let's see. Um, I will be uh, in New York. Keep in mind that this comes out in like six weeks. Six weeks. Okay. So everything I'm about to say is probably completely irrelevant. Or four um, weeks. Let's say four, probably about four weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So you've already missed everything cool I was just about to do. So, um, but you know, we have on our, um, on our site, there is a page where you can check, uh, Brian St. Pierre keeps it updated of like upcoming speaking gigs that we're, that we're going to do. So every time we, I mean, we now have a speaking team. It used to be just a couple of people, but now we're, we're getting quite a good roster of, of speakers. And so you can check the page and see like, okay, is the precision nutrition show about to roll into your town anytime soon? So that's a good place to stay updated. Um, I can send you the link and you can put it in the show notes. Totally. Yeah. I'd love that. And, um, what I'm going to say right now is Brian, I mean, I'm just going to be real, man. Krista brought, we, we've, we've been talking for two hours and 10 minutes. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm, yeah. very, I'm very impressed, Krista. I'm not saying that, Brian. I'm, I'm saying you guys are on the same level, but maybe if we were putting you guys on a scale, Krista, I think you may, you may have you may have bested my boy BSP. I think Brian needs to improve his game a little bit. That's all I'm saying. Just calling him out a little bit there. Yeah, and maybe get a better <laughs> microphone. Just, maybe 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 that's something you can expense for for PN. Uh, that'd be good for for podcasting and stuff like that. Um, maybe maybe you haven't gotten him launched on the right topic because I know he can be quite verbose once he gets launched into his favorite subjects. So I think maybe maybe you didn't ask him about the insulin hypothesis, which he can talk about for probably five years or so I, in a very angry and informed way. I I could have, um, but I'm always going to be concerned about the 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 very vast demographic of the audience and uh, <laughs> that a lot of people listen to this while driving. And um, <laughs> so I want to make sure that we can keep everyone safe and on the road and not uh, not sleeping when they shouldn't be. I'm just kidding, Brian. I'm just kidding, dude. Like the Brian is like, I could not be happier that he's at Precision Nutrition because it's just again, it's it's another fantastic part of the team that you guys have put together. It's just really the the best resource when it comes to nutrition stuff and. Um, if you're in the industry, or like I said, even if you're considering of just like getting a, a a really great wealth of knowledge, go look at the Precision Nutrition certifications because um, not only is there uh, the level one certification, which again, you know, I've talked to uh, talked to uh, a lot of people about that, and they've all been just 
incredibly impressed, like going above and beyond uh, with all the stuff that PN is doing. And then also there's now a level two certification, uh, which people can check out, of course, if they've already passed level one. So again, you guys are just continuing to get better and better with the stuff that you're putting together. And uh, Krista, thank you so much, seriously, for for taking all this time to, to talk and hang out and now we have like four pages of notes that I've, of stuff that I've written down, and I'm probably going to go and re-listen to these shows because there's so much good stuff in there. But um, thank you so much, and, and I really appreciate it. And hopefully you'll let me bug you in a couple of weeks, and we'll do another one. Absolutely. No, it was my pleasure. I, I, again, I, I've said this before, but you're a great interviewer, and uh, you really know how to, I think, make the most of even simple subjects. So It's, uh, it's the new microphone. Like it's, it, it's really Yeah, it's making the magic. That's that's what that's what you get with a four hundred dollar microphone is it just makes the questions sound better and the, 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 show, the show bumps up a little bit in, in, in quality. So, um, but seriously, thank you for that and for everyone else out there. Just don't forget to go to fitcast.network. There you're going to find all the shows on the network. There's almost a new show coming out every single day of the week. And if you enjoy this stuff, if you appreciate the production of this show, please help me continue to do it by supporting it either through Patreon a one-time PayPal donation. You can do a monthly donation or it might be just as simple as you going and instead of just going right to Amazon, go to fitcast.network, click on the Amazon tab at the upper right-hand corner. You get the same prices, the same great deals. But all we do is we take some money out of Jeff Bezos's pockets. And if we just saw their earnings, he's doing okay. The owner of Amazon, he's doing all right. Me and this network, this is still kind of like at the early stages of a business. So I'd love to be able to continue to do all this stuff and deliver every single uh, couple days a week. So uh, thank you so much to the audience out there. You guys are the best. And Krista, thank you again for, for taking the time to, to hang out and talk. Well, thanks for having me. 